Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast. Today is a special episode that we like to call Hero with a Thousand Side Quests, where we uh, dive into something a little different than our typical topic. Today we are running through our top 10 list for surviving the quarantine of 2020 to 2022. Uh, If that's not clear, there have been uh, multiple instances where it's probably best that we stayed home in the last two years or so. And so there are certain games that have helped us through that. So this is not a definitive top 10 list, but more so our personal top 10 list, where we're going to go five through five that means something to each of us it's like your your top five and my top five games that are that got us through the last two years yeah definitely so um we'll we'll go through uh you know there isn't necessarily a ranking per se i don't love one of these games more than the other but i have put them order from uh least impactful to most impactful for this time period for us and uh tyler's going to do something mostly similar to yeah i've got my list organized from the you know the fifth most useful to help me get through the last the last two years to the number one all right so i think uh if you want to i'll have you start us off since i did the intro okay i'm going to start with my fifth place uh game that will be slay the spire by mega crit games released in 2019 this is a deck builder roguelike game and what a deck builder is well it's kind of like magic the gathering i guess where you've got of course i mean i suppose maybe we're all very familiar with this genre already um but you've got these cards they're all very designer special abilities on them and you're gathering cards and creating a deck that you customize and you play through these challenges according to how you economize your deck and um i've played an actual card game deck builder game like one that you would with actual cards called dominion and i was obsessed about that for such a long time my goodness maybe five or six years ago i was just collecting expansion of expansion over expansion of this dominion set i have this massive massive um, binder of cards and and i haven't played it so much anymore but slay the spire is kind of like a video game version of that single player dominion you could play with up to four pl- uh, players um, but slay the spire is uh, a single player variation of that and you um, you uh, ascend through a, a roguelike of challenges and you unlock more cards along the way and over time you develop strategies and what sort of trinkets and passive abilities and all sorts of tricks and things like that to get you through the game. And then once you beat it for the first time, it increases in difficulty. So, so it's a pretty simple game. Um, the animation is pretty simple and straightforward. What you're, what you're really playing is the is the battle engine primarily. Um, as you get through it, it's I think it was fifteen or eighteen dollars when I bought it on the Switch. I know it's on Steam as well, and um, it's addictive. If you like if you like chin stroking strategy, um, Slay the Spire will will scratch that <laughs> will scratch that beard of yours. Uh, quite nicely yeah uh I, i'm very into that genre i feel like uh i've played something similar in hearthstone's uh adventures mode or dungeon runs mode they, they kind of switch it up each time what it is um but it, it's the same kind of thing as you don't necessarily need to have a built deck you, you just progress and build it as you go uh i think it's fun to 
approach a game with new challenges and new builds every time instead mm -hmm. of just kind of dialing into the same thing over and over to work with what you have and build what you can so i i haven't played slay the spire but it sounds similar to things i have played and thoroughly enjoyed just because of the variety that's available mm -hmm. yeah if if you like games where you are constantly bashing your head against a brick wall and wondering which one's going to break first that'll be the one because you'll die a lot sounds good so as far as this game goes have you reached an, an end game or a point of satisfaction where you've accomplished everything you want to accomplish with it or is it like an because it's roguelike there's an infinite amount of possibilities to where you've only really done a handful of the uh activities available that's a good question no i've done I'd say a quarter or less than a quarter of anything you could possibly do there, but I had to stop because I was playing it obsessively. So there are four decks. Well, let's say there are four there are four classes, there are four heroes that you play as as you ascend the spire. And I got really focused into the 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 most basic one, the ironclad. And I got through the increasing difficulty levels all the way to Ascension 20, which is the the hardest you can possibly be, and I beat that. Um I assume most uh, playthroughs, quote unquote playthroughs, um, have you kind of you you you're sampling all the classes and it's slowly going through the ascension levels. Ascension equals difficulty, where they keep pulling things out, where they add curses into your deck and things are hit harder and items are more expensive and you keep going up twenty levels until you can beat the game. That you know uh, at the, at at ascension twenty. I've done Ascension, I've beaten Ascension 20 with Ironclad, but I'm at like Ascension 1 with the other three classes. And if I wanted to keep playing the game, I would I would go back and go get into another deck. But I've played Ironclad for like 200 hours, and I just feel like I need to stop playing it. Mm. <laughs> and there's other things I want to play, there's other things I want to get involved in. It kind of reminds me about how I had to like forcibly, hatefully stop playing um darkest dungeon too because that's another one where it's like a roguelike and you're bashing your head against a brick wall until one of it breaks and if i had a controller in my hand i'd probably throw it against the wall in circum in circum circumstances and so in certain circumstances and so like like that i just had to like take some control over myself and say you're gonna you are going to stop even if i'm still curious because i don't want to spend another 150 hours getting involved in another class um, I could if I wanted to, but I have other games I want to play. I'm kind of, I don't know, I guess I'm, I got real deep into part of it, and well, that was good enough for me. I understand that, and when we get to my number five, I, I think we'll be in the same boat, so I will get there. But I do have one other question. Like, I've played Dominion uh, as well, probably not obsessively or to a nature where I understand the game on a competitive level, but when I do play Dominion, I play it almost like immersively or in a role-playing capacity. So I think there's an expansion that had something to do with like pirates or, you know, a yeah. seafaring adventure or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was doing a pirates only build. I wasn't going to pick any, anything that wasn't related to piracy. Right. And for better or worse, that got me to, I don't think I won that match, but I was playing in that spirit, right? And so with Slay the Spire, is there any sort of sense of like a story or an immersive element of, you know, dialing into a certain play style that's like from a role playing or like, a, I don't know, like setting standpoint, mm -hmm. satisfying in that way? Or is it strictly just you're playing a, a game and playing the mechanics to win the game? <laughs> 
I don't know. The short answer is is, is basically uh, no. It is it is it is just a it's not it's not very role play e mm-hmm. and um, no, it's, it's kind of strictly a, a strategy game. As as wonderful as it is, sure. Well, lay on me your number five. All right, my my number five for this uh, time period, a game that I really delved into was Fire Emblem Three Houses. Mm, uh, okay. Now, Fire Emblem Three Houses came out in 2019, and I believe I got it some few months after it came out. But due to the nature of that game, it extended well into March of 2020 for me. Um, that game has four separate campaigns. It's called three houses and at face value it has three separate campaigns but one of them also has a branching decision that you can make during those campaigns so it's got a lot of replay value there in that there's three separate stories you can take um and four different flavors of those or i I should say two of those stories uh, are pretty linear and then the other two kind of overlap a little bit so um overall there's three main stories you can kind of divulge into with four paths available i'm trying not to spoil the minutia of it for anybody that wants to pick it up but um it offers a lot of variety that even with a single single playthrough you can return to the game later and that's what i did uh it's a tactical rpg so similar to other tactical rpgs you've been playing uh you've got a grid a battlefield grid where you move characters across that grid and engage in multiple combat activities you're usually in those types of games building up more of an army than a small party so you might find yourself with six seven eight maybe a dozen party members at a given time depending on the game Mm -hmm. but um in this time too i also played a little bit of final fantasy tactics and tactics ogre so this is a genre that i feel has a deep level of replayability to me and fire emblem definitely slid right into that uh genre as well of having lots of paths and decisions to make um the one of the things i love about these types of games is like i mentioned building up that army and kind of uh having a connection to each individual role and like dialing into their speciality i I, you know if some guidance came out that said the best way to play the game is to just make an uh, army of 10 of these overpowered class you know and not just for fire emblem i'm saying if any game had that be the situation of you'll just destroy everything if you make 10 of these i still wouldn't do it because it doesn't deliver as much satisfaction to me and more of the uh well-rounded nature of having a synergistic party of every different style and uh fire emblem has lots of different classes to play uh, lots of different disciplines when there's like multiple different types of melee heroes there's spell casters uh, ranged archers you know a lot of things you'd come to expect from the genre and then uh, this game has mounted units which is I haven't seen in the tactics or uh, tactics over genre games. Um, you can mount a chocobo, but that's like its own character. That's not necessarily the case in Fire Emblem. You're able to mount wyverns or dragons, horses, and other units of various types. So I really enjoyed it. Um, the story is pretty generic to me. I, I know people who swear by it being the greatest thing since uh 
the last JRPG story they played before it. But um, to me, uh, there's pretty uh, predictable narrative beats. There, there was one uh, one story where not to to do it vaguely, but not to spoil anything. There, there's a character you know that um, ends up betraying you and creating their own faction of antagonists that you end up fighting. And they do so by have, having a shadowed alter ego with a mask and everything. And the very first time I saw this shadowy figure on screen, they spoke. And even though they had like voice modulation on, just even the tone of the voice and the dialogue and the writing, I was like, oh, it's this character. I know exactly who that is, despite their attempts to hide it from me. So there's a lot of predictability. Everything's just kind of uh, your standard uh, fantasy story. Nothing mind-blowing about it, but it's enjoyable. It has a social interaction feature in it, right, as well? Yes, it does. So you are in control of, uh, in this case, for this game, you're an instructor of a school, a military school. So you've got, depending on which class you side with of the uh, titular three houses, you've got a uh, a class of students who you you're building your relationship with them you're they're building relationships with each other mm -hmm. and uh that helps you in your role as an instructor kind of beef up their capabilities um and it also helps that when they're in battle if you've got two people that have a strong connection to each other they'll kind of buff each other's defensive stats or ability to hit and things like that it's accompanied by cutscenes of varying quality with each, um, where the you know the first the first layer you'll kind of have these students meeting each other and discovering their differences or getting into an argument with each other, and then months will go by and the next one you'll see they'll come to some sort of mutual understanding. And as you keep building them together, eventually you can get to the point where they're just like totally in sync with each other and might even have some sort of relationship or rom romantic connection that's pretty standard for uh fire emblem games um but also what makes this one unique from the other fire emblem games each of them kind of have their own little like home base area where you can uh just kind of do some housekeeping and general maintenance of your home. but this game you actually get to kind of run around the whole you're you're, you're Training school is at a monastery, and you can run around the whole area and take play, take part in various activities like fishing and cooking and all these things to build these relationships. You might actually spend more time doing stuff at the monastery than you will in battle at, on certain uh, blocks of time through the game. Sure, um, sure. It, it does have some satisfying elements to it. There's other less satisfying things where you're just finding random items scattered throughout the monastery that people lost and then you deliver to them to uh, increase their motivation in class you know and it's like these people are terrible at keeping their possessions on them uh, there's just it, it again kind of like we've been talking about with Xenoblade there's just like glowing ob objects floating in a corner you know but really, it's like if you were walking around this place in reality you just see people's junk littered all over the place because they keep losing it so uh yeah that's that's part of it too that's pretty um, funny 
but it all it does all come together into something that works and is pretty satisfying for uh, delivering that uh, immersive experience of being a tactical leader in charge of a group of individuals. It looks like it's highly rated uh, and it's very, very popular. I hear about it all the time. I never played it myself, haven't bought it. Never played a Fire Emblem game. Maybe I should get on that. Yes, there is a there's a weird thing that I don't typically get into, but um, the first one I played was Awakening, uh, or I should say the first one I completed was Awakening. I played several as they started coming to the West. Uh, they didn't originally come here uh, from Japan, but uh, the Awakening had a very satisfying thing where you would pair up characters uh, within your uh, team based on whatever you were feeling was the best combo or if you're more of a role player who had the best kind of story connection or whatever but uh these characters uh they'd eventually get married and be companions but you would find out later that their children time traveled from the future to save them from a calamity Jeez. so as as you pair up certain members of your party there'd suddenly be these opportunities of like oh, hey, their kid is now showing up because this potential future has become a reality. So you can see these kind of combinations of parents uh, coming through. And that was something that's like, okay, that aside from the typical dating sim game that Japan loves to throw in in the middle of video games, this is actually like a, an element that has a little bit more payoff for me to see what kind of character I created and what their connection to their parents are and the little stories there and everything. So that's cool fire emblem three houses doesn't necessarily have that but it does have another time skip mechanic in there and that's what i'll say is starting off the game after playing previous fire emblems i felt like the cast was a lim little limited from the fact that you only have high school students or you know academy students mm -hmm. available to you you know as where previous fire emblem games you'd have a grizzled old mercenary or uh, a dragon or something like that. This one, your entire party was made up of the, your class, you know? So that felt limiting to me coming from other Fire Emblem games, but the game does open to where you're recruiting more people. You're recruiting mercenaries to the monastery, teachers, other things. As the story progresses and things kind of fall apart, you, you, you do get more options. So that's that eventually works itself out. It was just something that put me off initially after playing the previous games. Outstanding. My number four is Earthbound. Yes, Earthbound. The internet has heard enough about Earthbound, the 1994 quirky JRPG from Ape and Hal Laboratory. Um, it is uh, it is a cult classic. It is the undertale of my generation, as I describe it to my niece and nephews. And I still play quite a bit because I am an amateur Earthbound speed runner, and I still speed run it. Uh, semi-regularly. I am by no means one of the top guys. You don't see me yet. Game's done quick. I am I am just one of those guys that loves finding a new way to appreciate the same sort of game under a new light, under a different angle, and speedrunning has retained that for me. Earthbound is the only game I speedrun, and 
I bought an SNES Classic maybe five years ago and then hacked it, added, added other games to it as well. Um, but Earthbound is one of the one of the native games on it, and so the SNES Classic is basically my Earthbound machine. And I run two routes on it. Um, one of the routes is called Bogey Percent, where it's kind of like an introductory route for for Earthbound speedrunners where you just do maybe the maybe the first quarter of the game up until you fight the boogie tent. There's a boss that is an evil tent, like a circus tent, the boogie tent, like boogie monster, boogie tent. It usually takes you, when you're starting speedrunning, about an hour or 30. Um, but recently, I I had a I had a one hour, 11 minute um, boogie percent, and so I submitted that. I'm the 73rd fastest boogie percent speedrunner in in North America. There are, of course, speedrunning routes where you complete the entire game, and, and there are a variety of those. The one that I like is called uh, any percent glitchless. And what that means is, is you are playing the game without using any glitches. You are just efficiently navigating the, the game as fast as you can, and it kind of turns the game into a roguelike. Not to say I'm super into roguelikes, maybe I am, I mean, Hades was fun, Darkest Dungeon was fun, I haven't played Binding of Isaac anyways. But you can kind of turn, like speedrunners that play Earthbound in, in non-glitch categories can can do that because you're you're um, avoiding enemies in the overworld on the fly, you're, you're very sensitive about inventory management, uh, money management, button inputs, and, and navigating menus. Uh, navigating the overworld and things like that. It isn't very obvious exactly all the clever things you can do to speed up, you know, getting around um, Earthbound. Uh, the in, in a conventional playthrough, it takes maybe 30 or 40 hours to get through the game. Um, but the any percent glitchless uh, run that I've submitted to speedrun.com is four hours, 33 minutes, 43 seconds, which puts me at 35th in North America. This is the only time in my life I get to celebrate that, so we're gonna all pat me on the back right now. Good job. Thank you. Nobody, nobody gives a shit about this. Nobody gives a shit about this. But I am really proud that I can crush Earthbound in, uh, in about four and a half hours. Now, so that any percent glitchless submission that was a few years ago, and I'm trying to get that that number down because in it, it appears to me, according to other folks, you know, I, I'm involved in the Earthbound speedrunning discord here and um it i'm getting a sense that like you're a good earthbound speedrunner if you can get your any percent glitchless below four hours and 20 minutes and i haven't done that yet but i've spent a lot of time over the course of the last two years trying to and ironing out my technique getting faster at menu menuing and because um the difference between um, let's say the 433, like I said, and a 420 is is some serious fine tuning about um, the, the 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 little nuances. Like when you when your brain stops to think, like do, doing that brain stops to think stuff instantaneously. Like even just menuing through battle. And if anybody knows Earthbound's menuing, is that it's really really non intuitive. I think Nate, you said that. Uh, even a couple weeks ago where you were kind of man yeah it's like a dos program or something definitely it seems like the whoever the developer was they had this uh, snes development kit and maybe they, they made the they're working on the s the original nes game as well but i feel like they they started out making their own kind of custom games in uh computer language dos whatever it was because it's all about like a series of stacking if then statements there's very little ui to anything you're doing 
in the game. Uh, it's always uh, a dialogue box on top of a dialogue box on top of a dialogue box to get anything done. And that can get tedious for somebody who's trying to, you know, not spend as much time in menus, spend more time in the world, more time in the game itself. I invite anybody who's fascinated by an older game to explore what the speedrunning route of it could be, because you might you might be able to re-appreciate a beloved vintage older increasingly aging game by dipping your toes into this other 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 way to fascinate yourself i've been doing like challenge runs with other sort of old games before i did a i did a natural magic final fantasy 6 run um recently and and other and a funny thing with final fantasy tactics where i was just what was it i was no buying armor at shops but i will buy items and so the only armor i was getting was from stealing or or inviting people to the party it was kind of ham-fisted but oh oh and and no and no using named characters like character characters once they join the party permanently oh yeah that that makes complete sense because that game is nuts with their named characters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes orlando so op so op yeah i feel like we could do an earthbound podcast where i digest it as a casual game player and i you know we could do a, a handful of chapters where I give the analysis as a first timer and then you kind of break it down as like, here's all the mechanical things going on. Here's how what's happening as somebody who's thought about this game for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I would love that if you've got the patience for it, maybe we could do that. We've also talked about maybe doing a long format of Mother 3, um, which never released in the West, but there is an English translation. Um, thanks mm-hmm. to Tomato. We love you, Tomato. You're, you are an Earthbound God. And of course, we're we're knee deep in Xenoblade Chronicles right now. We don't know what the follow-up um, long format series could be, but maybe maybe the Mother series could be on the table. Nate, you never agreed to this, but in the, in the introductions, I've been saying popular and niche RPGs. We haven't done any niche RPGs. We haven't talked about doing any niche RPGs in a in a in a long form format, but it flows off the tongue really well in the introductions, and so I put it there. And whether or not you've agreed to do something like that, maybe we could think about that after Xenoblade. Tonight's not the night when we're going to decide it, but yeah i don't know what you know what qualifies as popular and niche or Mm. if it's sales figures or exposure or whatever but i i have a feeling that in the 90s you know the final fantasies and all that would have been popular per se but we want to play triangle strategy and i'm gonna guess that as far as sales and exposure goes that's going to be more on the niche side of the overall gaming market share as things continue so th- that's kind of how i feel about it is we are going to get into some little bit more of a passion project than a heavy hitter game or two here uh yeah i think that'll be fun maybe we do another sub series where we do um first 10 hours reactions yeah. or something yes, like that my number four is a little bit of a cheat but i'm just gonna go with it because it all kind of blends together and has the same experience that is the classic original Tomb Raider series. I, during the quarantine, I played Tomb Raider 1, 2, 3, and I'm about halfway through Revelations. And this, these games kind of bring up a discussion about nostalgia and the power of nostalgia. Um, and, and people always cite when a, when a game gets re-released or 
it gets brought back. Um, it it's riding on nostalgia and it's riding on old people re-releasing something rather than moving forward or making something new. It's a cash grab. It's a you know uh, just lack of creativity. Uh, I don't feel that way when it comes to obviously we talk about old games a lot. We reference old games a lot, but I think it's important to identify what qualifies as nostalgia and what qualifies as genuinely timeless quality in games um i think something that makes that abundantly clear for me is the fact that together you and i uh helped me acquire a ps1 classic with nearly 200 games modded into it. And when I boot up that thing and hop into random games, it's immediately apparent which games are nostalgic to me and which games are mechanically and fundamentally enjoyable still to this day. So, for example, Resident Evil 2 is a game that has bad controls. It's got the much maligned, hated tank controls. Um, It's got cheesy awful dialogue that people make fun of and obviously because it's an old game the graphics are dated but to me from a gameplay standpoint still stands up as an amazing game to play because even though it has those bad controls it lends itself to the experience you're having the tightness the lack of power that your character possesses um and I think in that same vein, like Resident Evil 2 would be a game that people love speedrunning for the same reason people love speedrunning Earthbound. So that that PlayStation 1 classic, it, it makes apparent there are certain games that, you know, this is not as good as I remember it being. When I was a kid, I, I think one of those would be Twisted Metal, for example. This plays kind of like ass, but it was amazing to me as a young nearly teenager so anyway but getting back to tomb raider what do i like about that series that keeps me playing through multiple iterations of it recently um i think that for me they tap into a very satisfying degree of isolation and player guided exploration so there's no hints there's no giant fingers pointing where to go glowing objectives anything like that you're dropped into these uh exotic locations and you just kind of got to figure it out yourself now earlier levels are a little bit more linear they're not as confusing but the game is not shy about quickly opening you up to multiple pathways multiple points of error and uh problem solving needed by the player um it it really uh, rewards experimentation and i know other people can find it frustrating to not have a clear sense of what's going on or where to go but that's where i i like that isolated feeling um of and even the sound design lends itself to that there's a lot of eerie howling and atmospheric noises there isn't an overarching soundtrack playing the whole time there are little bits of classical inspired music that are tossed in from time to time at moments of excitement but for the most part you're just you're left to your own devices now later games in the tomb raider series would give lara a headset with a team of people 
telling her what to do, giving her hints and advice on things like that. And to me, that kind of took away from that experience. Uh, other games that kind of tap into this as well are like the Metroid games, where you're just, again, you're dropped into a new location, and it's just up to you to uh, make what you will out of it. And again, later games, in pursuit of that uh, more spectacle, story-driven angle, they give you AI counterparts to talk you through things, uh, give you advice on what you need to do next, etc. And I think there's a time and a place for that, but I really value games that let you take take on the role of the person doing that job of mapping out a unknown location. Nate, a minute ago, you described you appreciated how the games reward experimentation. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, uh, early on in the first Tomb Raider game, there is a level called St. Francis Folly. Starts out pretty simplistic, but once you kind of break through the first area, there are, I want to say, four doors of four gods that you need to grab an artifact of theirs to get through the main area. And there, you're climbing up and down a giant pillar to get to these four doors, and you also need to open the doors with various levers. And so it's just straight up a puzzle. And the only way to really solve that puzzle is to experiment and to work it out. You know, this, this would be an era of games where before the internet, before guides available at our fingertips, whether unless you had like the Game Pro magazine guide or whatever it was, but before all that it would probably be helpful to just have a pen and a piece of paper nearby to write things down or drop maps or do things like that. And that that's the first kind of instance of a level in the, the very first game, maybe even just an hour into the game, hour and a half, um, where you're presented with a situation where uh, you just got to gotta play around with the answers and see what comes out and figure it out on your own. And and then other other ways in which these games are kind of simple um, is that there aren't a lot of mechanics to them or special things you have to do. They will expand on these as time goes on. Lara will eventually get the ability to dash, to crouch, to dive through doorways and swing on vines and everything. And all of that's good and helps layer on the experience i think it's actually great that the first game doesn't have all of these abilities because with these tank controls for lara you're going to spend some time getting used to that and by the time you've completed the first game you've kind of got all of these abilities under your uh control they introduce some new ones and then it keeps layering on to where there is a natural progression playing through all four that i enjoy it's also an era where we didn't really have these levels that were just like self-generated Unreal Engine asset dumps, you know, where mm-hmm. you can just create a giant mountain space with uh, an automated algorithm of sorts and put thousands of degrees of foliage on them and everything and have it look lush and gorgeous. Uh, everything's a little bit more hand design, and I appreciate that. There's a lot of scenic moments where 
you're running down a for example you're running through a lush jungle area and due to the draw distance of the original playstation you can't see a giant t-rex out in the distance until he's basically charging straight at you you know and it just gives this like oh shit moment you know and uh there's there's a lot of moments like that where um it's like a handcrafted experience things that don't happen as organically in open world games or modern games where to deliver those moments they also they almost need to uh, take control of the camera and highlight them for you yourself. Whereas in the old games, you can kind of uh, curate that player experience of what we're seeing when in a different way. In third place, I have Spiritfarer Thunder Lotus Games from 2020. It is a management game, very low key, very casual game, uh, big, big character driven, big narrative driven, very nice animations. In, in Spirit Fair, you play the role of Stella. Stella has taken the mantle of being the shepherd that guides souls through to the next life. And she navigates the world on this ship. The ship is very modular. And as you progress throughout the game, you are constantly building up your ship with all of these little compartments. It might be a kitchen, it might be a blacksmith, it might be uh, a, a habitation for some of these characters that are souls. The, the entire world is this purgatory. You're on this ocean and what you do is you, you go onto these islands and there's mining and there's chopping down trees and there's little mini games all throughout. It's all very casual, very light jumping. There's no health bar, there's no energy. Um, management, but you do have resources that you are attending to, and over the course of the game, you get to know these spirits, and these spirits join your crew as passengers, and these are and they are anthropomorphic animals, and and it's worth um, stressing that the that the entire animation of the game is very is very hand drawn cartoon, and and the cartoon it reminds me most of is the old maybe 40 years ago 40 or 50 years ago um robin hood with the anthropomorphic animals it's very very much in touch with that the animations the characters are all very neat spirit fair is all about the emotional connection it develops with the player through stella and and how it interacts with these passengers because once they board the ship they know that they are headed to the other side and once they're there um, there is a line of quests where we get to know them a little bit better, what their life was like when they were when they were alive. And we get to know what their favorite foods are. We have to feed them. We have to hug them. This game is a hugging mechanic. They have these they have this mood bar and it and it slides in the right direction um, as you complete their quests, as you hug them, as you feed them the correct food, and things like that and some of them are and and these these spirits are complicated characters they are some of them are very sweet some of them are very moody some of them have um addiction problems some of them are still in love with uh their husband that is a pathological cheater uh, one of them is a total asshole to all of the other people on the ship but they read but over time you realize that his his bad attitude is rooted in some sort of uh, duty to his little brother that is also on the ship um, and 
Uh, right. And so I put this as number three on my list, not just because it's a kind of a low key casual platformer, but but it's a two player game as well. And it's something that my wife and I are able to play uh, together. It is because there's no health bar, there's no energy bar, um, there's very light jumping and, and you know, platforming to do here. Um, she can she can play along and she loves, you know, um, planting those ve- planting those vegetables on the ship. Um, completing quests and and you know attending to the to the, your ship's economy another major thing i want to underscore here is that when you complete a character's quest line when they're ready to cross over you go to this place on the map and it and it's this beautiful bridge over um a sunset like it's a burnt red uh, uh the way in which the sun hits the water it's completely red and there's this lovely autumnal foliage kind of overcoming this bridge and the bridge is this optical illusion where it's the the negative space that your canoe that passes a character through to the other side creates a perfect circle from the reflection of the water and there's this beautiful music that plays it's very very emotional we're gonna play it in the podcast as this is going on right now and i i call it the spirit fair overture and it and you feel so tender about this character you've gotten to know them over the course of the over the course of their quest line here but now it's time to say goodbye and as you are canoeing them you have the ship, but as but when you take them through the through the gateway, you canoe them through it. it you, the ship has sort of a dinghy. Anyways, you have this final conversation where you finally reveal where where the character finally like reveals the last secret part of their personality or their history, or they have a parting um, comment to share with with Stella over the you know at you know before she before she parts ways you hug one more time and then you go through the door the character rises up and kind of like levitates in the air they turn into a, a golden light and then they burst into sparkles and they're gone they're gone and it's emotional they do a really really good job at creating a unemotional connection to the character and some of, some of it it lands pretty well with me other times not so much but it it hits when it does hit it hits pretty nicely and oh my god that the 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 overture is so good i said it was a two-player game so one person can play as stella and the other person plays as her cat uh, named daffodil and one thing i wanted to share about that was that over the course of the game you start learning about the nature of stella herself because she's become this Charon character, you know, Charon being like the uh, the ferryman to the other side of the river Styx in you know Greek mythology, right? But but mm-hmm. she has a meta story too, and that slowly unfolds as you progress through the plot, as you navigate the larger ocean that this all takes place on, and that gets pretty interesting too as you learn about what Stella is doing in this place. Do I need a player too in order to get that story unlocked? No, you don't. Um, uh, the the cat is not consequential to the story at all. It can it can do about fifty percent of the things that Stella can do. It can't turn in quests. It can't it can't progress quests, but it can do all of the chores that Stella can do. It can navigate the boat. You can do you can do a lot. Okay. 
Another thing worth mentioning is that as you develop your ship, um, you kind of create this custom parkour course for yourself as well because you stack these the porcupine's room stacks on top of the blacksmith stacks on top of the orchard stacks on top of the other thing and then you, you can leap across them and then over time you can create these these zip lines that go from one side to the other there are these fan tool like the uh, a, a fan in the ground pointed upward that you can loft into the air by your parachute ability and as you as you progress the game as you develop your ship you create this obstacle course to help you navigate around it and that's kind of fun too as you there's a lot of customization in which how your ship can look yeah i've uh my wife has played the game too she has a nintendo switch Lite, and it's kind of the perfect game it appears to be a perfect game to hop in and kind of do a set of daily activities and things to move the ball gradually down the field for your goals she seems very enamored with kind of checking in with her squad yeah it's nice to see what kind of animal is going to join the crew next because you know one time sometime it's a deer next time it's a lion next time it's the lion's husband oh this time it's a chicken this time it's a bull holy smokes it's a it's an anthropomorphic mushroom there's a large variety of creatures and 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 related subquests that you get into it's it's pretty neat. Have you finished it at this point? No, we are ninety percent the way there. We we are able to finish the game. We have we have completed the Stella's backstory storyline, and we have an opportunity to to go through the through the gateway ourselves. But we're declining to because we still have other characters on our ship that we want to do, and so we get through it maybe one or two nights a week. But we're coming to the end. We're very. We're very close to completing it. Yeah, from what I saw, I was really impressed with the artwork, the presentation of it, and there. I think there's definitely a place for games that have that level of calmness and like a. I, I the best way I can say it is like a comfy factor, you know, to uh, dial down just some of the. I don't know what the word is, the like excitement level of certain games. I, I feel like watching Brianna play that, it, it's a very calming and relaxing experience. For oh, her. yeah. I, I'd agree with that. Well, cool. All right. My game in third place is uh, Streets of Rage 4. Um, this is a beat em up game where you can have multiple players on screen beating them up multiple enemies as well uh, the streets of rage series was kind of made as an answer by sega for their sega genesis and i believe the master drive even had a iteration of the game put on it but it was an answer to the fact that nintendo had earned or maybe not earned but bought out exclusive rights to capcom's final fight which was a huge arcade hit so in these games you pick a hero character you scroll from left to right you have a about half a screen's worth of vertical uh isometric space to walk up and down multiple enemies will come and you mash a button to punch them in the face so uh you'll you'll progress through a stage uh, 
killing off a lot of peons until you eventually get to a boss character. So Streets of Rage was Sega's answer to being locked out from having Final Fantasy on their console, so they decided we're going to make our own. That was the 90s. Uh, they made three iterations back then, and uh, a uh, indie company, Lizard Cube and uh, Guard Crush, uh, decided to kind of bring it back with their own distinct style and make some updates as well. Um, so. Streets of Rage 4, when I first started playing it, I was a little miffed by it because they had taken away the ability to run. Certain <laughs> enemies what? only had like a limited move set to them, and there was just certain things that were kind of putting me off to the game at first, but as I spent more time with it and I eventually got to the end, I, I kind of learned what the game was doing and, and where it was going with its new design, and I just fell completely in love with it and it all—it almost makes it hard to go back and play the old original three. I still like the original three but it's a little bit more difficult after playing uh, Streets of Rage 4 and I'll explain why. Uh, but first I'll comment on kind of the first things you see when you boot up this game. It's got a very expressive lush visual style of a, a cartoony hand-drawn uh, animation to it. It's different than the the series origins because back when Streets of Rage 1 through 3 were made, pixel art was the norm. It was the standard way in which graphics were presented on screen via the hardware they had. So to kind of reboot the series and bring it back, the question is do you do pixel art again? Do you do your own thing? And they definitely went with their own style. They have um, the main hero is no longer the, um, I, I don't know who I'd compare him to from the 90s, but he went from being a clean-shaven, muscly, you know, uh, Brad Pitt-esque hero to more of a, he's got a beard, he's got a, a ripped-up jean jacket, his hair is kind of all messed up. Um, He's more so looking like a washed-up 90s hero in the latest iteration, and uh, it's it's done in a very, uh, I don't know, almost tongue-in-cheek kind of way, and uh, I, I, I found it enjoyable to see how they represented each character in the series. Um, Blaze, the other that's kind of second hero, she got her signature black leather jacket back in her character design. As the games progressed in the original Sega version, they started clothing her less and less. Mm. And so this iteration uh, gave her back a little bit more clothes, but it's also a nice little nod to the developer uh, of the original Streets of Rage series. Uh, her name was Ayano Koshiro, and she is the sister of the. Uh, famed Yuzo Koshiro who made the soundtrack for that game and other mm -hmm. Sega games but she always wore a leather jacket when she went out because it was it was her staple and so they gave the Blaze character who was originally based on her they gave her her leather jacket back which I like it's a nice little detail I'm looking at images of the of the game on online right here and I can see that it's a kind of like a comic book sort of animation here not pixel art this is well shaded, well well drawn. Um, I, I'm not seeing any animation here. I'm just looking at Google image searches, and, and I can see the, uh, the the detail you're describing earlier. 
Yeah, and there is a there's almost like um in still images you might not see it, but as you're playing through the game, there's several areas where you can pick up a little um like newsprint dot I don't even know what to call it, the little dot print that was used on newspapers to kind of save on ink, but still get an image out. Um, that is kind of hidden in the texturing and layering of images and things like that to kind of give these subtle hints of a, like you said, a comic print that you're looking at. So very expressive. There's scenes where uh, they they use rim lighting on the characters based on the lights in the levels that are around you. So even though it's using this flat old school format for, or I should say maybe not flat, but like a 2.5D or an isometric type game, um, they they use the tools that they have to create depth and atmospherics in ways that the originals just couldn't, and it's very satisfying. Uh, now, the thing that really makes the game work for me is the the combat itself is actually super deep because one thing they expanded on is the ability for... Um, move attacks and different special moves and everything like that to juggle characters hit them off the ground so if an enemy is laying on the ground a a certain ground attack or an uppercut can pick them up off the ground you can jump kick enemies in the middle of the air while they've already you're in the middle of a combo for them so for example i've got a certain combo i prefer where with blaze where i'll start her combo but mid combo i will cancel the combo into a special move where she does a somersault forward with her hands on fire that will slam dunk the enemy into the ground bounce them off the ground into the air at which point i can jump kick them and i can cancel my jump kick into a flying fire jump kick twice to juggle them in the air to uh create opportunities for lots of damage so what this does is it creates a combo counter and as long as you're keeping the damage flowing you know you can land and let that enemy expire and if in the next handful of seconds you get over to another enemy and you start going to town on them you can keep that combo counter going to hundreds of hits and what that does for you is it will at the end of the stage rank your score the multiplier you've gotten from the combos and letting these uh damage trains kind of play out it'll give you a higher score so i found myself addicted to getting the s rank in every level of this game i am a person who hates doing time trials ranking systems anything like that in video games because i feel like in a lot of cases they're tacked on you know uh there will be certain games where they just put this as a feature at the end, but it doesn't really lend itself to playing the game the way the game's designed. So I find a lot of games will, you're almost playing the game counterintuitively to how the characters would act or the the way in which the mechanics play out in order to do these time trials or point modifiers or whatever. In this game, that is not the case. I feel like they developed the combat with this in mind, the satisfying nature of extending out your combos, 
and doing special moves into other special moves and things like that it each character kind of has a different way to approach this so that combo that i outlined for one character is completely different progression path for another they just released dlc who has a like a a grappler character she's like a police officer and for that character really you're getting in there and you're dunking them with wrestling moves and doing uh leg drops on them and things like that it's it's pretty hilarious to just once you discover your options for a character it's hilarious to just watch some of these things play out and execute them um I've played through the campaign several times with a friend online who's kind of in the same spirit, just loves to see what ridiculous things we can do. And it's just a blast every time. What console are you playing this on? I own this game on Switch and PC because I felt like they deserve my money twice. Um, I primarily have played on PC, uh, especially when we play online, we use um, Parsec because it just gives us a much more responsive experience when we are trying to do those sick moves. What's that? We've noticed the oh, Parsec is a service where you can actually stream your screen to another player and we find that the input lag for a person online playing that method is a lot less than if we're trying to sync up two game clients. So instead of two independent game clients running and trying to sync we just have one game client that one person is uh, streaming inputs into, and that makes it a lot less uh, cumbersome to have. I don't know for the for the game to figure out what's going on. It, it it's great for fighting games as well, where fighting games have historically struggled with online problems. Um, doing a fighting game over Parsec, just one person hosting the screen, and there's no more syncing calculations to be done. It's just a matter of the whatever the input lag is you account for that and, and parsec handles that and it's much more responsive for the person playing online so the only one thing about streets rage 4 that i found a little less satisfying was that the story and tone for me were a little bit of a disappointment because uh dialing back to the first three games the first two games were pretty standard fare of there's a crime boss we gotta go kill him but the third game came up with this absurd 90s action movie plot of a corrupt crime boss replacing government officials with robotic clones that would you know vote his way and everything like this it was hilarious but it was great and something that i like about 80s and 90s movies is when they take themselves completely seriously you know uh what streets of rage 4 does is it just delivers a little bit too much of the winking and nodding to itself in the absurdity that I can't enjoy it the same way anymore. I don't know if you'll know what I mean when I talk about how modern entertainment has been Whedonization or Whedonized. Does that mean anything to you? Like Joss Whedon? Yes, yes. Oh, boy. No, I, I don't I, know what that means, but I'm but lay it on me. I feel like uh, ever since Joss Whedon had the monumental success of making the Avengers movie, he did it in a way of like, he, he always does this thing where 
He tries to disarm any criticism you could have of, you know, hey, you're watching a comic book movie and that's childish and dumb. This was made for kids. He he tries to disarm all of that with like winking and nodding to the audience of like, hey, look at how ridiculous we look. This is absurd, blah, 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 you know, and he gets that out of the way so that he can go on to just do what he wants to do with the story. And it creates a lot of these meta moments or like in moments for fans, you know. And it works in his spaces because he does it well. But with that success, everyone wants to do it now. So we've got all of these properties, all of these different directors, creators, everything that just want to, you know, uh, we're we're gonna do an homage to an '80s movie or a, or an '80s game. But we're gonna the whole way we're just gonna wink and nod to all the absurdities of it, and it's like it gets tiring for me. And I think that's one of the things that got a little bit tiring for me in the latest Matrix Resurrections was I like hearing kind of the ins and outs of the meta conversation of how that movie was made. But then there's also times where it's like, I I do want some of this to have like a, a lasting impact that matters. I do want some of this to have some seriousness to it, you know? They tried, and in some places they did better than others, but I feel like a lot of modern properties, they do this thing of like, yeah, we know you love the 80s, we know you love the 90s, but we can't take them as as seriously as we want to. So in this case, with Streets of Rage 4, the entire story is just kind of played off as a big joke, you know, like, it's absurd, it's campy and they know it so they're just going to dial into it and make it a big schlocky you know romp and i'm sure a lot of people would say like yeah the games were never meant to be serious they're just meant to be fun so why am i up getting all bent out of shape but i go back to streets or h3's presentation tone and story and how it was just this fucking ridiculous dark edgy game and i loved it for it so i don't know that's my personal take that's the only thing that was disappointing about the game the music the presentation everything else about it top notch amazing can i tell you a secret nate what is it i've never seen an avengers movie yeah it's it's one of my things that i just grew up with so uh i'm in it for the long haul you know i this is a tangent, but hey, maybe that's what the podcast is for. But as a kid, my sister dated uh, a guy who worked at the Little Professor bookstore in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. And at the end of the month, when um, the new comics would come in and they needed to rotate the old ones out that wouldn't sell, they'd just throw them in the dumpster. But you couldn't throw entirely perfectly good comics in the dumpster because people would dumpster dive for comics then. So you had to tear the covers off of them. So every month I got a stack, like a one foot high stack of fresh coverless comics. And I still have some of my favorites, but that gave me a entire free world of entertainment every month for three or four years. It was, it was, it was a magical ride. So, um, I grew up with that and I like all of those properties, but I do uh, I do understand that the formulaic nature and what they've done to the movie scape is probably not healthy for the medium long term. And that part is a little concerning to me. 
post-production Tyler here. We are splitting up this episode into two sections because we talk at length about our second and first place finishers and now seemed like a good time to take a break. Thanks for listening and join us for part two of the top five games played during quarantine.